following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, as we turn this morning to the Word of God, may the God of the Word bless you, and may He keep you, and may He make His face shine upon you, May the God of the word be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and leave you with his peace. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the 19th chapter of the book of Psalms. I'd like to begin by reading the 19th chapter of the book of Psalms. And so as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you, the people of God and those of you who have not believed upon Christ, to hear and heed the soul-reviving, wisdom-imparting, heart-rejoicing words of the true and living God. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock 
and my Redeemer. Grace community, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was truly one of the darkest times in Israel's history. A wicked king by the name of Ahab was ruling. He married a wicked, ruthless woman by the name of Jezebel, whom he allowed to build a temple dedicated to Baal. This woman instigated a large-scale rebellion and opposition to Yahweh, the true God. She killed God's prophets. She tore down God's altars. And of course, this led to the prophet Elijah fleeing for his life in the wilderness. It was during this intense period that Elijah confronted Ahab and called for a contest. He called all of Israel to assemble at Mount Carmel and invited 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, the Canaanite mother goddess of the sea. Elijah turns to the people of Israel who had been spiritually led astray. And he asks the famous question, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people said nothing. Elijah called for two bulls to be brought for the sacrifice. Two, bull, two bulls to be brought to the contest. One for Elijah and the other for the false prophets. As the bulls were slaughtered and placed on the altar, Elijah said to them, Now you call upon the name of your God. And I will call upon the name of Yahweh and the God who answers by fire. He is God. On your mark, get set. In other words, the God who speaks by bringing down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. He is God. And so the false prophets took their bull. They prepared it. And they began to call upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. And we are told that there was no voice and no one answered. And Elijah begins to have a little fun. He begins to mock them, saying, Cry aloud, cry louder, for he is a God. Either he's musing in contemplation. Maybe he's meditating, or he's in the bathroom. He's relieving himself. Or it could be that he's on vacation. He's on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep, and you've got to wake him up. And they cried aloud all the more, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them, hoping to attract his attention. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, gather close. He had rebuilt one of the altars of Yahweh that had been torn down, and he dug a trench around it. He laid the wood and the bull 
upon the altar and ordered the altar to be drenched with water. And he did that three times to ensure that everything on that altar, the wood through and through, would be absolutely soaked, which would have made it humanly impossible to get a fire going. And then Elijah prayed. He says, Oh, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And we are told that when Elijah prayed, fire, the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. He is the God who speaks. He is the God who is not silent. The message of the, the title of my message this morning is God is not silent. God is not silent. The truth that Elijah sought to burn into the hearts of the people is that they were not to worship a God who could not speak. The psalmist in Psalm 115 declared, declared concerning the false gods and the idols of the nations, he declared these words. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Because Yahweh is the God who speaks. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a God who speaks. A God who is not silent. And as we turn our attention this morning to Psalm 19, we are confronted with the God who speaks. He speaks to be heard. He speaks to be known. He speaks to be worshipped and he speaks to be obeyed. As the doorway into the Psalms, Psalm 1 established the fundamental importance of God's word. And of course, Psalm 119 will elaborate further on the authority and sufficiency and sweetness of the word of God. And then in Psalm 8... God calls our attention to his self-revelation in creation. Where David says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your, ha your, your heavens, I see the work of your fingers. The moon and the stars, you have set them in place. So Psalm 1 highlights the importance of the word of God. Psalm 8 highlights the beauty of God's self-revelation in creation. Well, now here in Psalm, 100, Psalm 19, the writer brings both realities together. The revelation of God through his word and the revelation of God in his world. And the psalmist composes this song to be sung by the people of God. Note how the psalm begins. To the choir master a psalm 
of David to the choir master. King David, having been led by the Spirit of God to compose this beautiful song reflecting upon what theologians call general revelation, which refers to the way in which God reveals himself in creation, and special revelation, or the way in which God reveals himself more clearly in the scriptures. David takes this God-breathed reflection on these two massive realities, and he doesn't hand it to the librarian to be put on the shelf for theological study and analysis later on. No, he hands it to the choir master, the worship leader of Israel, who would lead Israel and eventually the church of Jesus Christ in exalting God with high, holy, heartfelt praise and worship and adoration. It's true that a sound theology will always produce a fervent doxology. As we consider this beautiful psalm together this morning, there are three things that God, through this psalm, is calling his people to do. His people in David's day, his people throughout the history of the church, and his people today. Three things that we must do. There is something we must hear with our eyes. There is something we must treasure in our hearts. And there is something we must confess with our lips. There is something we must hear with our eyes, verses 1 to 6, something we must treasure in our hearts, verses 7 through 11, and something we must confess with our lips, verses 12 through 14. Here we have three voices, a three-part harmony, if you will, one message. We have the voice of the heavens. We have the voice of, the, of God in the scriptures, and then we have the voice of God's people, God's servant, in verses 12 through 14. Three harmonious voices, one song to the glory of God. And so as we consider first, verses 1 to 6, I want you to note what we must hear with our eyes, the silent proclamation of our created universe. The silent proclamation of our created universe. David begins with that famous line, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens, according to Psalm 8, are where the moon and the stars are. Psalm 148, the word is translated, the highest heavens. In Job, the heavens are inclusive of the clouds, where the clouds are formed, where the clouds roam about. And so really, this word heavens here encompasses everything from God's storehouses in the clouds, where he stores his rain and his hail and his lightning, according to Job, all the way to his splendor in the stars and in the planets and in the galaxies. The heavens declare the glory of God. This immediate heaven that we see in the clouds all the way to the highest heaven, farthest galaxy, farthest star. The vast expanse of space that takes, the, takes literally light years to make its way to us. This is the heavens. And notice what the heavens are doing. They are declaring. They are proclaiming. 
They are preaching the glory of God. They are proclaiming the glory of God. This is not a past tense reality. The heavens once declared the glory of God. No, this is ongoing. The heavens declare the glory of God. Notice the substance of the sermon, the glory of God. It can be a difficult word to translate or define because it's more like trying to explain the word splendor than the word sprinkler. You can describe a sprinkler. You hook it up to your water lines, put enough pressure behind it, and it pops up out of the ground, and it goes in this circuit, and it, it, it waters the grass. Or you tie it to the end of a hose, and you turn it on, and it, it, it waters the grass. But you can't do that with the word splendor. You can't, you, you, you can't do that with the word magnificence or the word beauty. But here's the thing. You know splendor, and you know beauty, and you know magnificence when you see it in the night sky or a sunset, or a sunrise, the expanse of the night sky. It's the same with the word glory. One of the most important words for glory in the Hebrew Old Testament is the word kabod. It signifies something heavy, something weighty. We're told, for instance, that Eli the judge, upon hearing the news about the Ark of the Covenant being lost to the Philistines, fell back off his seat, broke his neck, and died, for the man was old and kabod, heavy. Whenever David's son Absalom was due to cut his hair at the end of the year, we're told that he had to do it because it was kabod, heavy. We're told it was roughly five pounds, however he did that. Kabod was also used to describe a heavy battle. Battles that were particularly fierce and brutal. But the word kabod was also used to describe a person's wealth. For example, in Genesis 13, 2, Abraham was said to be very kabod, rich, heavy with livestock and silver and gold. It was used to describe King Solomon's wealth. He was, we he was weighty in wealth. He was loaded with riches. The man was heavy. It signified wealth. It signified importance. Today we talk about a person's net worth, which refers to their total accumulated wealth. That's one of the ways the word glory is used in the Bible. The glory of God is God's net worth, if you will. All that he is and all that he possesses as the sovereign God of the universe. Robert Raymond in his systematic theology says, God's glory is the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God. And there's more. The word glory not only signifies God's weightiness, God's wealth, God's worth, but it also refers to his prestige, his reputation, his renown, his honor, or perhaps better understood, his fame, his fame. There's also some closely related vocabulary that is often found in the context with the word kabod or glory. For example, in Psalm 96, which is a celebration of God's greatness. Verse 3 commands the readers to declare his glory among the nations. And then verse 8 calls us to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. 
But between these two verses, the psalmist states that splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Psalm 145 also speaks of the glorious splendor of God's majesty. And so the glory of God also refers to the manifest beauty and splendor of God's holiness. The word holy means separate. Separate. Separated from what's common. When the word holiness is used with reference to God, the emphasis is on God's utter and total uniqueness as God. He is in a class and he is in a category all by himself. There is nothing like God. There is no one like God in all of creation. 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy like Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And so the glory of God is his holiness revealed, his holiness manifested, his holiness put on display, his utter uniqueness gone public. As one theologian put it, the holiness of God is his concealed glory. The glory of God is his revealed holiness. You remember that account in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah says it was the year that King Uzziah died and he sees Adonai high and lifted up upon his throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his and you would expect him to say his holiness, because that's what he's celebrating to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his. You would think it would be holiness. But he says glory. Because that's what the angels are intrigued by. They are awestruck by his intrinsic, inherent holiness. They recognize that there is none like this king in all of his beauty and all of his magnificence. And they're saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why? Because God's glory is his holiness revealed. His holiness manifested. His holiness put on display. His glory is the revelation of the net worth of his infinite and unparalleled holiness. We have to do some work to really get to the bottom of defining glory in the Bible, but it's well worth it. One more example of the fact that God's glory is his holiness revealed. This example comes out of Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, where God says, I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me, comma, new line, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. The parallelism helps us understand the full passage. I will demonstrate my holiness and I will reveal my glory before all people. The people. What we learn there is the demonstration of his holiness is the revelation of his glory. God's glory is the visible demonstration, the open manifestation of his holiness. And so when you put it all together, the glory of God can be defined as the indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that God is in his matchless holiness and fame. 
The glory of God is the indescribably beautiful revelation of the infinite weight and worth of all that he is in his matchless holiness and fame. And that's what the heavens are proclaiming. The heavens declare the infinite weight and worth of all that Yahweh is in his matchless holiness and fame. That's what the heavens are preaching. Nonstop. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above, the old King James word, the firmament proclaims his handiwork. This is anthropomorphic. This is the writer using human language to describe an infinite God who has no hands and parts like we do. The point is that he designed it all. He designed it all. The way a carpenter would design a beautiful piece of furniture with all of its cuts and pieces. God has designed in his intricate, infinite wisdom, the heavens and the earth, placing every star in its place, every galaxy, every nebula, every cluster. He has put it there. He spoke it into existence, and it's, it's been there ever since, doing what it's called, been called to do, preach his fame. That's what the heavens are doing. And this is continuous. Look at verse 2. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. The idea is day after day. Ever since that first day. It was morning and it was evening. The first day. The second day. Ever since those days, the heavens have been pouring out Speech. The word pour out there in the Hebrew speaks of something that's, that's bubbling up, something that's welling over, something that's spilling over. You see, friends, the creation, the earth, the mountains, the cells, the molecules, the molehills, the mountains, the nebula, the galaxies, everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything is bubbling over the message of God's infinite worth and fame and greatness the, 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 the creation cannot contain it. It's bubbling over. That's the idea. It's pouring out speech. It's bubbling over glory. Night to night reveals knowledge. It's like the night can't wait to get here to reveal the knowledge of this God. The knowledge of God. The knowledge that provokes questions like, what kind of God can speak this all into existence? What kind of God can rule over all of this vast expanse, light years? What kind of God can hang the stars and the moon and the sun? Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The idea is that all of this proclamation, all of this declaration, all of this celestial preaching in the heavens, it's all silent, but it's loud. If you have the eyes to hear it. The eyes to hear it. It's so loud. It's bubbling over. 
It's spilling over. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. It's happening day after day and night after night. Friends, sometimes we catch ourselves just longing for a word from God. If only God would speak to me. Friends, God hasn't stopped speaking since creation. You just got to get out of your house. And David's writing without a telescope. He's writing without a Mike Sherrick in the crowd who, with his massive telescope, can see farther than what we can see with our eyes. He has no NASA to bring him beautiful pictures from the Webb telescope. He has none of that. And yet still, he understands what the heavens are doing. They're preaching God's infinite worth and weight, the weight of his fame. And all without speech, all without words. This is silent proclamation, but the point is being made. You know, you can say things without saying things, can't you? I tend to enjoy to talk when there's a lot of, you know, friends or whatever, just, just you know, talking about the latest this or that or theology or whatever, and sometimes it gets me in trouble when we're out and about, and all my wife has to do is give me that look. She says nothing, but she's saying something, like, wrap this up, it's time to go. The point is being made even without words, and the same is true on a cosmic galactic scale. All of this knowledge and the proclamation of the glory of the Most High God is just pounding humanity, pounding humanity, thundering in the thunder, splashing us in the head with the rain from the clouds, God's storehouses, all testifying of the weight and worth of all that he is in his matchless holiness and fame. All without words. Verse 4 says, There voice, or some translations say, their line goes out through all the earth. That's a kind of a, there's a, there's a, the translation can go either way. Their voice goes out through all the earth. That's really the main point. But if we take the translation of line, it's not necessarily a measuring line, but uh, the line as in Isaiah 28 verse 10, where God talks to the people that they're going to learn the scriptures line upon line, precept upon precept. Same idea here. This really well could be that this line of the glory of God, if it were taken to be you know, a literal line of words, it's just a line of words circling around every tree and every person and every house and every mountain. The lines of the glory of God, the, the proclamation of his greatness is just roaming the earth, all the corners of the earth. Every mountain, every molehill, every hole in the ground, every puddle, everything is testifying of the greatness of this king. And notice, not only does the voice of the heavens go out through all the earth, the voice of God's glory through all the earth, it says their words go out through the end of the world. All the way to the end of the world. That means there's no place on earth where the heavens are not making their point. There is no place on earth where you can't hear the sermon. And friends, if you can go outside on a night sky, I'm sorry, if you can go outside 
on a dark night and look up at that night sky and not be impressed with the glory of God, you are sleeping through the sermon. He says, these words go out to the end of the world. This is the loudest sermon. And it's constant. It never turns off. And this is great fuel for when we find ourselves depressed and down and despondent and despair at times. Because no matter what condition we find ourselves in, there is a sermon being preached if we will just go out and hear it with our eyes. On our darkest day, the heavens are preaching. On the darkest night, the heavens are preaching. And we're confronted with the reality and weight and worth and fame of all that he is in himself as the sovereign ruler of the universe. He goes on at the end of verse 4 and says, In them, that is in the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun. Again, this is anthropomorphic. He's describing creation and describing the realities of the universe in poetic language. In the heavens, he's made a tent. He's established a tent for the sun. Every morning, that sun comes out of its tent and throughout the day rushes back to that tent. This is interesting because many believe that this is polemical here, that David, being led by the Spirit of God, is, in a sense, attacking some of the pagan beliefs that the sun was some kind of deity. The sun god. All, I mean, just look at ancient history, and you find that so many civilizations worshipped the sun. And David will have no such thing, because the sun, at the end of the day, is a created reality spoken into existence by the God who speaks. But he is God's son. The son is his creation. And now as he focuses, shifts from the heavens now to the one thing in the heavens that dominates all of life on earth, the sun, he's going to focus in on the sun and, and, and this is key because he's going to go on in the next set of verses to focus in on that which dominates all of life in the spiritual realm, and that is the word of God. So as the sun dominates all of life in the physical world, he's going to move on to the word of God, which dominates all of life in the spiritual world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, and notice verse 5, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber which could mean one or two things. It could mean that he, he's leaving his wedding chamber on his way to get married, or this son comes out in the morning like a bright bridegroom after his wedding night. The picture is of sheer joy. Sheer joy. And we know that because look at the next line, verse 5. And like a strong man... He doesn't get tired like an Olympian, like an athlete. He runs his course with joy. The one reality that dominates all of life in the physical world is marked by 
joy. So when that sun comes up in the morning, there's joy. Again, this is fuel for times of despair and hopelessness. That even when days are dark and the clouds are covering the sun, there is joy behind all of those clouds. There is rejoicing in creation. There is rejoicing in ultimate reality. There is joy. Because the God who made that sun is a God of infinite joy. And I think we forget that sometimes. We think that God is this grumpy God in the skies, angry at everything that's happening in the world. Friends, he sits in the heavens and he laughs at rebellion. Oh, the time is coming when he will bring down his swift justice and it will be dreadful. But the God of the Bible is a God of infinite, indescribable joy. And if there's anyone who taught us that very well, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. How often he spoke of the joy of God, the joy of heaven when sinners are converted, joy rejoicing among the angels, amongst his father. There is joy. On that night before his crucifixion, he prayed that his joy would be given to his people. The God of the scriptures, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God of the universe is marked by and distinguished by joy. Heaven will be a place of joy. The new creation will be a place of joy, infinite joy. The Son, from the moment he leaves his chamber, runs his entire course. I mean, he, he tracks out the day as if it was an Olympic race. And that sun just makes its way with joy across the sky. Because he is God's son. God's S-U-N. Notice verse 6. Its rising is from the end of the heavens. And its circuit to the end of them. In other words, it rises from our perspective in the east, and then it goes into his tent in the west every night. We are told in the Bible that from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And the sun is a reminder of that. I wouldn't recommend you going out and staring into the sun. But as you are mindful of the sun, every time you walk outside and you feel the sun's heat on your face, that's a reminder, a reminder to praise the name of Yahweh. That sun is running its course with joy. And there is nothing, look at the last line in verse 6, there is nothing hidden from its heat. Nothing hidden from its heat. And that's God's design. And it's all calling our attention to the infinite weight and fame of all that God is in his glory and his holiness. That is what we must hear with our eyes. And again, that's not a typo in my notes. That is what we must hear with our eyes, the silent proclamation of our created universe. But there's more. We move on secondly to what we must treasure in our hearts. The sufficient word of our covenant God. What we must treasure in our hearts. The sufficient word of our covenant God, verses 7 through 11. This is interesting because in verses 1 to 6, God is mentioned one time. And the Hebrew word that's used for God there is the general word for God, El, creator God. 
sovereign God, the God who is known, by the way, by all people groups in the world, the God who has his fingerprints all over creation, the God whose glory the heavens are screaming, that God. But then what's interesting is that when we come to verses 7 through 11, the word is changed. Six times in these verses, the word Yahweh is used because now we go from general God known by all to the covenant God known only to and by his people. Yahweh is the name that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush just before God entered into covenant with the people of Israel. So the heavens tell us of his glory. But when we get into these verses that focus on the word of God, it's the word of God that tells us his name. The word of God speaks of his character, what he's like. And you see, friends, this is important because while creation, the heavens and the earth, are screaming and proclaiming night and day the glorious reality of this glorious God, the heavens cannot tell you how to be saved. The heavens do not have enough information to tell you what you must do to inherit eternal life. The heavens are still vitally important because they leave man without excuse. We're told in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Where? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, things in the heavens and things on earth. Last line of verse 20, so they are without excuse. No one will be able to say on judgment day, I didn't know you existed. I didn't know you were the God of all. No, Paul says, they know it, but they suppress it. They know it, it's like a beach ball that they are trying to suppress in the bottom of a pool that keeps on popping up to the surface every time they slip. Everything is reminding us of God. Biblically, there is no such thing as a genuine, authentic atheist. There are only those who are pretending that God doesn't exist so that they can live their own way. Man knows because creation has made his existence and his glory known without saying a word. Without saying a word. Well, now we turn to what we must treasure in our hearts, the sufficient word of our covenant God. Look at verse 7. The law or the Torah of Yahweh is perfect. He's going to use several synonyms here to refer to, really, the Word of God, the revealed Word of God contained in the Scriptures. 
And what I want you to have in mind is that David, at the time he was writing this, did not have a completed Bible. Certainly didn't have the New Testament. More than likely, according to most scholars, what David had was the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We don't even have the books of the prophets yet, because they weren't there. But he reflects upon the Torah, the instruction of Yahweh given in the first five books. And he says the, the Torah of Yahweh is perfect. And notice behind all of these sayings here, whether it's the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules, they all have that little phrase of the Lord behind it because it's all of his. The Bible is not man's book about God. The Bible is God's book written through men about God. It's the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord. He calls our attention in these verses to the authority of God's word. And when we rightly understand the authority of God's word, then we naturally make our way to revel in and rejoice in the sufficiency of God's word. You see, God's word is enough because of what it is. God's word. He's going to call our attention here to the sufficiency of God's word. This is what we must treasure in our hearts. The sufficient word of our covenant, God. The law of the Lord is perfect. That is, it's complete. David understood that in his day. David understood, like we understand, 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later, sorry, that what we have in the scriptures is complete. All that we need to know for life and godliness. David, in his day, had everything he needed to know for life and godliness. He had everything he needed to know in order to live a life that's pleasing to his God. And notice what the word does. The last line of verse 7, or the, the second line, it's perfect, reviving the soul. The word means to convert or to turn or to bring back the soul. That which in man goes astray after sin and idols, the word of God has the power to bring that soul back to God. That's how powerful his word is. That's why we gather, by the way, on Sundays. One of the reasons we gather is because we've been tempted to stray all week long. Some of us have strayed all week long, and yet the word has such inherent power and authority and sufficiency in it to when you hear it proclaimed, it like a magnet draws your soul back to your God. That's the power of God's word. It always brings us back. Uh, he goes on and says, the testimony, that which God testifies, that which God declares is sure. That is, it's certain. It is anchored. It is solid. It is not wishy-washy. It is not this one day and then this the next day. It is certain. It is solid. You can build your life on it. You can build your eternal destiny upon it. You can build eternity on it. It's solid. And notice what it does. The fourth line down. Making wise the simple. So not only does it 
bring back the straying soul and restore it and revive it and replenish it and bring it into a place of spiritual prosperity before God. But it makes the simple wise. The simple in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament refers to oftentimes the ignorant, the wayward, the pliable, the moldable, the impressionable, the man who can wake up and be swayed by whatever the day brings him, the woman who can wake up and be tempted in any direction and she goes that direction. So potent and precious and powerful is the word of God that is able to infuse that kind of person with godly wisdom to anchor that person so that they're not like a person that's tossed to and fro by the waves, by every wind of doctrine. It has the power to make someone wise. Wise wisdom here. It's, it's, it's the skill of knowing how to appropriate and apply God's word to all of life's situations. This is what we need according to the Proverbs. It's what we desire more than silver and gold is wisdom from God. And it's the word of God, the testimony of God that makes us wise. And as we cross over into the New Testament, Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And he also says that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. The more you know the word and the word is in you and, and bubbling out of you, treasure it in the heart, known in the mind, mold over in the meditations, the more wise you're going to be. You're going to hear and discern the voice of the tempter behind this tree. You're going to discern different traps that are laid before your feet. You're going to understand the different voices that you hear in the world that are anti-God and anti-Christ, but that sound very good. The word of God is able to make you wise. The, 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 the simple person here refers to the teachable person. So if this is what God's word does, one of our prayers should be constantly is, Lord, make me, no matter how much I study, no matter how much theology I know, make me and keep me teachable. Teachable. Verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right. The precepts of the Lord are right. There's nothing erroneous about them. And notice what they do. Notice what God's word does. Rejoicing the heart. So we focused in the first stanza of the joy of the Son. Now we have the joy of God's sons and God's daughters. God's word has the power to rejoice the heart. The heart that is sometimes weighed down by the sorrows of sin and the sorrows of this life and the sorrows of the ongoing battle between the flesh and the spirit. God's word has the power to shock that heart, as it were, and bring it back to joy because you realize that God is your portion. The lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. Indeed, you have a beautiful inheritance. 
He makes known to us the path of life, and in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And when the truth of that sets in, the heart, the renewed heart, the regenerated heart, can be anything but sorrowful. There's joy infused into the heart by the word of God. That means also that these, these, these precepts, the prescriptions of God's word are right. They, they don't, they're not burdensome. They, they bring joy. And that's something the enemy loves to communicate and tempt the people of God with. Oh, if you build your life upon the word, you're going to be sorrowful. It's going to be burdensome. It's going to be grievous. It's going to be heavy. That's a lie. Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that was what rabbis used. That's what, well, that's what, uh, that's what rabbis used to say is, is, come under the yoke of my teaching. Come over, under the yoke of my instruction. Jesus says, my instruction, as the greatest of all teachers, is light. Light upon your soul because it points you to him, the one who bears our burdens, the one who bore our sin, and the one who gives us his joy and his peace. The word of God rejoices the heart. Now, this is interesting because in the first six verses, we were confronted with creator God. Now we're talking about covenant God. And it's interesting because as the creator, he knows what makes the heart joyful because he created that heart. Human history is a sad, sad account of man seeking to seeking for ways to bring about joy in the heart. And he's always looking in the wrong places. Yet as our creator, he says, you want joy, you want rejoicing, you want genuine, authentic happiness and rest for your soul. Get to know my word. Search me out in my word. The commandment of the Lord which is more than likely a summation of all of God's commandments, is pure. That is, it's clear. And look what it does. It enlightens the eyes. The picture here is of like some eye salve being poured into your eyes and clearing up the eyes, making them bright. So it could be one or two things, according to many commentators. The, 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 the reality of enlightening the eyes could be that he causes you to see as you should see to clear the clutter in your eyes, to be able to have discernment and understanding and to see clearly through life. Or it could mean the, the expression of, you, have you, you've heard the expression, man, that guy's eyes were just bright with joy. It's probably one of those two because joy was mentioned in the first one before this. But he enlightens our eyes, allowing us to see what we ought to see and the brightness with which we ought to see it. And now verse 9 kind of deviates kind of from the pattern. The fear of the Lord is clean. He's been talking about the word of God. The word, the word, the word, the word is this, the word is that. It does this, it does that. By the way, God's word does what it does because it is what it is. It has these amazing effects because it's God's word, not man's word. He now points to the effect of God's word upon the heart. That's the fear of the Lord in verse 9. 
the fear of the Lord that it's produced by the word of God being ingested again and again is clean, enduring forever, which means either the word endures forever or the people who walk in the fear of the Lord endure forever, which is consistent with 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 that says, he who does the will of God abides forever. He says the rules of the Lord are true. His decrees, his decisions are true and righteous. And not just true and righteous, but true and righteous all together. Verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. In other words, the words of God are priceless. The word of God is priceless. Imagine if we truly believed this this morning, that the word of God, the words of God are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sometimes our English translations and translators try to neaten or clean up the language, and I think they have good motives. But the word here for desired is in many places in the Old Testament a bad word. It's the word covetous. More to be coveted are God's word than gold. More to be coveted are they than gold. And not just gold, but he says fine gold. The best of the best. And then he gives another illustration regarding not just the pricelessness of the word, but the preciousness of the word. Look at, look at the next half. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In other words, if we can bring it to 2024, it's sweeter than the honey that's on the shelf at the grocery store, but yet even sweeter than the honey that's in the honeycomb right now. Even sweeter than that. You see, God's word is greater to be desired than riches because it enriches the soul. It makes a, a person so rich, even if, if financially, physically, they're not very rich. You can, you can be the richest person in the world when God's word is alive in you and precious to you. And it's sweeter. It has the, has the, the ability to just leave you satisfied. I mean, I know that there's people that, in this room that probably don't like honey, but this is meant to be a good thing. I'm sorry if you're allergic to honey, by the way. Sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. There's those instances where the prophets eat the scroll of the word of God and they find it so sweet. So sweet. Verse 11, as we come to the end of this section, moreover, by them... Is your servant warned? By your words, your servant is warned. You see, in all of this, he hasn't really talked about himself until now. And how he identifies is himself is just so appropriate in light of the glory of God in the heavens and the glory of God in his word. He says, at the end of the day, what I am before you, O God, is your servant. I am your servant. I'm here for you. I'm not here for myself. This is a good place. Starting point for all of us to begin. We are servants of the living God. We are waiting upon him. We are waiting to do his bidding. We exist to do his good pleasure. 
And life gets turned around and flipped on its head when we view ourselves as anything other than servants of the Most High God. We exist for his glory, to be filled with his joy, to be instructed by his word. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In other words, when I find in your, what I find in your word is warning. Warnings. Again, he's just thinking about the first five books. And so there's enough warning in the first five books to be warned against adultery, against lying, against bringing bad offerings to God with a bad heart, Cain. There is warning in the first five books alone regarding how our great enemy deceives people by questioning the word and denying the word and lying to us. Did God really say, you will not surely die? There's enough warning in the first five books to keep us from sin. How much more warning do you and I have now that we have a completed Bible? We must pay that much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, Hebrews says. We need to be warned because we stray. We need to be warned. We need to be cautioned. The word is cautioned here. God's word cautions us. It warns us. It comforts us, yes, but it also cautions us. It rejoices our heart, yes, but it also warns us. You see, if your God speaks to you, but always agrees with you, you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. The God of the Bible disagrees with us on many levels, but lovingly warns us in order to keep us close to him. So often people want a God who's going to agree with everything they do, and that God is nothing more than a worthless idol that is usually themselves. He says also, flip side of this, last line of verse 11, in keeping your words, there is great reward. Notice the phrase. It doesn't say there will be great reward in the end, but keeping God's word right now is the reward because it guarantees that we walk before the living God with his countenance upon us, with his joy flowing through us and in us. The reward is now. And so when you're tempted to sin, don't just think about the reward that is at the end of the road. Think about the reward right now. That if you say no to temptation, if you say no to the tempter's voice, if you say no to the lust of the flesh now, there's reward to be had right now in living before God. And so we come to the last three verses, 12, 13, 14. We have seen and considered what we must hear with our eyes, the silent proclamation of our created universe. We have considered what we must treasure in our hearts, the sufficient word of our covenant God. And we come lastly to what we must confess with our lips, the sincere prayer of a contrite heart. The sincere prayer of a contrite heart. All of this has an effect on the man now. He's considered the glory in the heavens. He's considered the glory that is proclaimed in all the earth silently, yet effectively. 
He's considered the, the authority of God's word, the sufficiency of God's word, the pricelessness of God's word, the power of God's word, and the preciousness of God's word. And all of this has had an effect on his heart now. And we see that in verse 12, because he asks the question, who can discern his errors? Who can discern his mistakes? These are the slip-ups, the blind spots that we often have in our lives. In other words, this question is communicating one big truth, and it is this. Even after walking with God for many years, we really have no idea how sinful we really are. We have to pray this often. Oh, Lord, how can I discern my errors? How can I recognize when I slip up? How can I recognize the mistakes that I make? I mean, the, the, the errors here refer to those, those, those blunders, those trip-ups, those mistakes that aren't, you know, like in, in comparison to other sins, like the, the high-handed sins. These are just the, the everyday blind spots that we have, that we often have someone come to us and say, hey, I'm, I'm noticing this in you. Or God eventually convicts us in a sermon or whatever it might be on the radio or whatever. Who can discern his errors? The idea is no one. The answer is no one. No one can truly discern his errors, which is why we need the previous stanza, the precepts, the Lord, the law, the law of the Lord, the word of God, the complete canon of scripture in order to help us discern our erroneous ways. And notice the prayer that he prays here. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now he calls our attention to not just the mistakes that we make, but now the secret sins that we make in places where we think no one else sees. David says, and it's just, so, it's just amazing that we can look back 3,000 years from us and see a man who struggles with the very same things we struggle with. Errors or trip-ups and then the hidden sins to which all of us at times succumb. The sins that no one sees but God. The sins that no one hears about but God. He asks that God would declare him innocent, cleanse him from these hidden faults. By the way, this reminds us, friends, if, if, if he can pray to God about his hidden sins, this implies that God knows what those hidden sins are. He doesn't say, God, I got some hidden sins to tell you about. You didn't see them, but let me explain. No, God, he knows that God knows. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that there's nothing hidden from God. All things are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees it all. And here's the interesting saving paradox of this reality. If you hide your sin and seek to hide in your sin, God sees nothing but your sin. But if you hide in the Lord Jesus Christ, he cannot see your sin because it's put away. It's thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. So either you can hide in your sin or you can hide in the Savior. Every person is hiding this, this morning. Mark my words. Every person in this room is hiding somewhere. You're either hiding in your sin with your makeup fig leaves hiding from the Lord, or you are hiding in the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you hide in your sins, God will see nothing but your sin. If you hide in your Savior, he will see nothing 
but the Savior's righteousness. Verse 13 makes a progression deeper. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So notice the progression. The mistakes, the secret sins that people commit when no one's around, and then now the presumptuous sins. These are the high-handed sins, the bold sins, the premeditated sins. He says, keep me back. So he's not just asking for pardon, verse 12. He is asking for preservation, verse 13. That is important because we can't, we need both. We can't just say, God, pardon me for my sin when there's no desire to be preserved from future sin. He says, pardon me, but also preserve me. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. And he knows why. Look at the, last, the second line in verse 13. Let them not have dominion over me. He knows. 3,000 years before us, 2,000 years before Paul, and Jesus, who would teach about the enslaving power of sin. He knows that sin, presumptuous sins, have the power to enslave people. Let them not have dominion over me. Let them not rule over me. And friends, we get to read this from the reality of Romans chapter 6, where we are no longer enslaved to sin because we've been set free by the Son of God. And then he says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So here's the last, here's where sin leads, great transgression. A term that was used to describe Israel's apostasy when they built that golden calf. You see, this is where sin ultimately wants to go, is total apostasy, totally casting off your allegiance to Yahweh. This is great transgression. This is great apostasy. But this is insightful for us because it helps us understand how to avoid apostasy. How to avoid falling away. It's interesting that a psalm that opens up on the realities of the glory of God in the heavens, running throughout all the earth, ends with a desire to be kept close to God. Because that's the effect that creation should have upon us, and that's the effect that the word should have upon us. Father, keep me from my mistakes Keep me from hidden sins, keep me from high-handed sins, and keep me from apostasy. Great transgression. And finally, as we consider what we must confess with our lips, the sincere prayer of a contrite heart, we come to verse 14. Let the words of my mouth, this is a request, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, because you know that the heart overflows the mouth. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation, the pondering of my heart be acceptable in your sight or in your presence. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. This is glorious. A song that opens up in celebration of the glory of God's fame and worth in all of creation. And then goes on to celebrate the authority of God's word in our lives, the sufficiency of God's word in our lives, the pricelessness of his word, the preciousness of his word, the sweetness and sufficiency of his word ends with wanting to just be acceptable in his presence. That's the effect that all of this should have upon us is, Lord, I want to be accepted in your presence. Well, we know in the New Testament that there's only one way to be accepted in his presence. 
It's not by our works. It's not by our labors. It's not by our prayers. It's not by our sighs and tears. It's not by trying to be better. It's not by going to church. The only way that you can be made acceptable before God is if you have the Son of God as your Savior, as the sole trust of your heart and soul, having the Lord Jesus Christ being justified by faith in him and in him alone. That's the only way you can be accepted in God's presence. And notice the very last line. What we have in common with David is this. David is celebrating his God as his covenant God. We celebrate this God as our covenant God. Only unlike David, we are part of a different covenant. We are part of the new covenant, inaugurated, established by the blood of Christ that washed our sins away and gave us his righteousness. And now we, because of the new covenant, because of Christ, can call God our rock. That is our strength, our unmoving foundation. All other ground is shifting sand, but not this rock. And he is ours. In fact, the New Testament would go on to call Jesus the rock that followed the people in the wilderness. It was, it was, it was Christ, but he is our redeemer. Christ has redeemed us from sin. He has paid the ransom price to free us from the slave market of sin and death by his cross, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. We are redeemed not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Christ owns you, Christian. He owns you. He redeemed you. You are his. He does not share you. He is jealous over you. He loves you. You are his. He redeemed you. He's paid the price. You are not your own. So glorify God in your body because you belong to him. This is the prayer that you should pray. This is the effect of God's general revelation and the effect of God's special revelation is a desire to be acceptable in his sight, that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to God, our rock and our redeemer. Friends, this points us ultimately to, if this this psalm celebrates the beauty of God's revelation, both in creation and in the canon of scripture, it begs the question, what is the canon all about? What is the message of the Bible all about. Maybe you're here today, maybe you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you're unfamiliar with the Bible. We need to ask the question, what is the Bible about? Preacher, let's say I'm on my deathbed right now. What do I need to know before I meet this God? You need to know the gospel. You need to know the gospel. It is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ, and that right now he calls everyone everywhere to repent and believe in Christ alone for salvation because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ. You need to understand that each of us has sinned against God, exchanging his glory, breaking his law, and defying his authority. And the due penalty for our sin, according to the Bible, is death and hell, which is nothing more than the endless outpouring of his righteous wrath. But because of his love and out of sheer grace, God sent his son, Jesus, to live for his people's sake. The perfect, obedient life God requires and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. 
On the third day, Jesus defeated death, rose bodily from the grave, and now reigns at the right hand of God, offering forgiveness, offering righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in the presence of God to all who call upon his merciful and mighty name. The gospel also announces, as we read in the gospels, the arrival of God's kingdom, the inevitable expansion of that kingdom, the eventual consummation of that kingdom, when all things will be made new and the gospel celebrates the plundering of Satan's kingdom out of which God rescues, regenerates, and renews the lives of those formerly enslaved to sin and Satan for their full and lasting joy in him to the eternal praise of his glory and grace. Psalm 19 tells us what we must hear with our eyes, the silent proclamation of our created universe. It tells us what we must treasure in our hearts, the sufficient word of our covenant God, and it tells us what we must confess with our lips, the sincere prayer of a contrite heart.